0: There once was a man who was either from the future or who was from our time and traveled into the future. I've read conflicting reports, or I guess heard conflicting reports in this case. Either way, what he saw in the future was an apocalyptic, cataclysmic dystopia. The end of the world, the fall of humanity wrought by some unknown horror. And seeing this, he knew what had to be done, so he came back to our time to warn us all. But something went wrong. How his time machine even functioned exactly is unknown, except that it apparently somehow incorporated a magnetic field. Some disastrous magnetic mishap, therefore, turned his body into metal. Whether steel or lead or something else, it really doesn't make a difference the exact type of metal or alloy he was turned into. He'd become known as the Iron Man, Ignored or viewed as an oddity by the rest of humankind, the very same people he once sought to save, and unable to communicate, barely able to move, for that matter, at least for a time, his condition and ostracism eventually drove him mad, until it turned out that the Iron Man was, in fact, capable of moving, and much more. He was capable of bringing about the very Armageddon that he had foreseen. The Black Sabbath song, Iron Man, is a succinct, efficient nightmare. A horror story about a man whose heroic ambitions inadvertently render him an outsider, and whose outsider status then turns him into the world's greatest villain. In the previous episode, I talked about how scary it can be to be the outsider, but as we saw in multiple examples from that episode, sometimes the scared outsider turns into the scary outsider. But there are other occasions, in fiction and in reality, where sometimes an outsider starts and ends the story as the primary threat. Historically, large forces of ill-intentioned outsiders have been responsible for the destruction of entire cultures, the Sea People of the Bronze Age, the Conquistadors in the Western Hemisphere, the Portuguese, among other European kingdoms in Africa. The words... Foreign and invaders are often loaded words now thrown about casually and or in very bad faith tinted by uh, prejudice and nefarious propaganda intentions but in certain historical contexts they applied to a literal Invasion force. And I guess in certain historical contexts, they also had the nefarious propaganda uh, undercurrent as well. But there were also plenty of situations where there was a legitimate, actual invading army that those uh, terms, foreign invaders, were applied to. We're talking about organized, motivated forces determined to plunder, consume, subjugate, or occupy. The fear of such aggressive, conflict-chasing and death-dealing outsiders in any era is, of course, understandable when the threat is legitimate, and for some people, it was a cloud hovering far above their heads, or not that far above their heads in certain circumstances, for most, if not all, of their lives, and unfortunately, sadly, that still applies today in some battle-torn parts of the world. So while, again, some form of prejudice often inspires fear of an outsider, in some cases, The fear is born of suspicion that, in turn, is born by direct, impactful precedent. And this has been exploited in fiction as a way to thrill and chill readers and watchers for a very long time. The British author Sir George Tompkins Chesney essentially created an entire subgenre called invasion literature with his novella The Battle of Dorking, The story of a Britain overrun by a German speaking force, which was very clearly Germany, even though it was not stated to be Germany at the time or Prussia. Uh, Instead, it was referred to within the story only as the enemy or the other power, my emphasis on the word other. Chesney's story is effectively the progenitor of stories that range from The War of the Worlds to Red Dawn, from the early spy novel, The Riddle of the Sands, to the futuristic comic, We Stand on Guard, and to the television series, V. All of these stories, and many others like them, feature a coordinated and often sudden assault from a literal army of outsiders, sometimes coming from as far as deep space, and other times coming from as close as the country next door. But there are, of course, other stories that don't involve such large-scale Monumental apocalyptic conflicts, stories of frightening outsiders who don't come from a distant land, but are nonetheless people on the fringes of our society. They may act alone, or at least in much smaller, tighter numbers, and yet to the lives that they will impact and possibly destroy. In that moment, when they are interacting with them and encountering them and doing the damages they may seem no less apocalyptic than an armada of warships appearing off the coastline. Charles Manson and his quote-unquote family of killers are an obvious and infamous horrifying non-fiction example. The true crime book The Man from the Train hypothesizes that a lone outsider, a man named Paul Mueller, once rode the rails from town to town killing entire families in the early 20th century. In fiction, The great Richard Matheson once wrote a story of another traveling purveyor of terror, albeit one who did not directly kill. In his short story, The Distributor, Matheson tells of a man named Theodore Gordon who shows up in a pleasant enough suburb solely to surreptitiously sow suspicion and paranoia, turn neighbors against one another, ruin lives, and then move on. And we never find out what his exact motivation is. Is he working for a higher authority? Is this his own personal project? We, again, never find out. We just know that he's terrifyingly effective at what he does. A similarly behaved, more clearly motivated group of alien outsiders appear in the classic Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Like Theodore Gordon, their aim is to initiate enough discord to make people of an idyllic neighborhood attack one another. For the aliens, this is a dry run showing how easy it would be for them to eventually conquer the Earth just by distantly causing a power outage here, turning on a car engine at the opportune time there, and after that, mostly sitting back and letting the group destroy itself. Other extraterrestrial or preternatural outsiders intent on destroying small towns or even the entire world might take a more direct approach. The aliens in Alice Sheldon's The Screwfly Solution instigate global femicide to eliminate mankind so that they can have the Earth to themselves. Mr. Dark, head of the traveling carnival in Something Wicked This Way Comes, is an active collector of lives. The same could be said of Leland Gaunt in Stephen King's Needful Things, another King story, The Storm of the Century, gives us yet another demonic solo outsider who invades a town and openly spreads mayhem and terror in the pursuit of a singular goal. And then there is a much lesser known outsider created by another horror novelist who got his start in the 70s. Michael McDowell wrote some very compelling stories that have gotten some more attention in recent years courtesy of Will Erickson's Too Much Horror Fiction blog and through being reissued by Valancourt Books, But they are still largely under the radar for many horror fans. And his magnum opus, perhaps, is the Blackwater Saga, which begins with a flood that brings a very strange woman with no history into the town of Perdido, Alabama, and particularly into the world of the Caskey family, which will find itself forever changed by her arrival. Eleanor Damert should be a much more notable villain, or anti-villain I guess, in the uh, annals of horror fiction. She is uniquely compelling, seemingly overpowered, and yet, in the end, dependent on the help of ordinary people when things get to a point where she actually has to meet her fate. Sometimes cold, yet clearly determined and inspired, she's smart and calculating, but also impetuous and somewhat short-sighted, she is murderously evil, yet also the benevolent bringer of prosperity to a family and even an entire town that she comes to think of as her own. If you haven't read the Blackwater saga, and odds are that you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's not a full-force, propulsive style of, of horror, it's not a wall-to-wall scares, and it has very long stretches of drama, family drama, but it's ever unnerving and disquieting nonetheless, particularly in the way that Eleanor insinuates herself into Perdido's most prominent family, the aforementioned Caskeys. Throughout the story, she can lull you multiple times into thinking that she is the good guy in the story, and then comes the next time that she coldly and viciously murders someone, reminding you that, She is, again, at best, an anti-villain here. And every time she kills someone, she creates a vengeful ghost that settles for killing someone else, someone close to Eleanor, in order to injure her emotionally in place of being able to get to her directly. Because throughout most of the, the novel, she's too powerful for them to exact their vengeance upon her directly. So she is not only killing people, she is getting people killed. People that are close to her, that also, even though they are close to her, don't really completely understand her true nature and are ultimately innocent. She's getting them killed as collateral damage to her actions and ambitions. Anyway, before I say too much more, I do want to give you an opportunity, if you haven't read the book and are intrigued enough to now want to maybe try to read it, I'll give you an opportunity here to just go ahead and stop. Go, read it, and then however long it takes you to finish it, come back to this point when you're done. And if you're still here, let's get into what Eleanor Dammert truly is. Or rather, at least, what she seems to be. And I say seems to be because it's never fully defined by design, by intent, in the novel as to what she is and, and truly what all she is capable of. She appears to be some kind of reptilian river goddess or something, some kind of ancient being, creature, a lot of words that, you know, might not quite be befitting what all uh, she entails and what all she displays. She is, one way or another, some kind of monster wearing a human disguise. Her nature is essentially revealed very early on as well, so it's not much of a spoiler at all to, to detail this. It's... Even on the uh, most recent book cover, since it's been reissued, um, an indication that she is more than human. She is something well beyond human and much closer to reptilian in her natural state. In her human disguise, however, she is originally discovered in a hotel room after a tremendous flood, where the waters have reached a high point within the hotel and now have since receded somewhat, but she still has to be reached by boat because the waters are still that high but the water line within that hotel room is too high for her to have survived inside waiting to be rescued which is what she claims to have happened her apparent powers of persuasion seem to uh, make the target of her temptations oscar caskey oblivious to this fact though it's not lost on bray a black man employed to be of general service to the caskeys Bray is with Oscar when Eleanor is discovered and he is therefore the first person to really raise any kind of suspicion or objection to her presence and her story. And incidentally, uh, Bray, like many of the other black characters in the story, save for one who does grow loyal to Eleanor and thus plays a more prominent role, uh, but the rest are essentially rendered outsiders within the story and sidelined. By the fact that they recognize something strange is going on very early on and try to quietly disengage themselves from whatever it is that's happening. And what is happening is that Eleanor has set her sights on Oscar with the intent of marrying him. And to that end, she is going to use her array of powers, which are again not exactly defined, but... We do see relatively early on that she can either control the weather, at least on one occasion, or she possesses such an intimate knowledge of the weather that she can use that to her advantage. Hence, when a sufficiently strong storm arises out of nowhere, she makes sure that a rival is on the road when the storm arrives, is being driven through the storm, in fact, when it arrives, so that she can inevitably die in a violent car accident. And like several of Eleanor's victims, the woman who dies in that accident was an awful person who had very recently harmed a child. Other victims include the psychotically and abusively overbearing Caskey matriarch, a staple character in Michael McDowell's novels, and a violent ex-husband. Characters you're not expected to uh, sympathize with, exactly, but then there are also others. There are children who she attacks and kills to strengthen herself when needed, including A mentally handicapped boy who follows eleanor innocently to be sacrificed in the river that either birthed her or is a part of her something along those lines something in between it's it's hard to say but she has a definitive attachment to the river and that is played up in the novel as well anyway it's it's much easier to say that that boy in question didn't deserve what happened to him just like any of the other children and some of the other innocents that she kills and it gives us all the proof will ever need that Eleanor is not above killing innocent people if it will get her what she wants. As to what she does want, Eleanor is the ultimate outsider and therefore her wants and desires are hard to pin down. She's not even human. She seemingly wants to live a simple human life to experience love and marriage and motherhood and grandmotherhood. Friendship, kinship, financial success, and all the luxuries and pleasures that come with that. All of these things seem to be part of what is her ultimate objective, but she wants them all on her own terms, which are those of a supernatural being, a demigod, a deity, something along those lines, something that ranks above uh, basic creature status. She wants these things on those terms, and she does not want to relinquish her powers in pursuit of of a more ordinary mortal existence thus eliminating the possibility that this stage of her existence can ever be considered ordinary or even you know in in the sense that we would understand it mortal she doesn't really want to have a simple human life after all but maybe just a facsimile of it um, as close as she can get to experiencing without having to give up what she truly is She seems content to compete with her rivals quote-unquote fairly on uh, matching human-to-human terms only for so long. At a certain point, each and every time, she reaches uh, a point in the conflict where she runs out of patience or she thinks maybe she might not get things to go completely her way. And at that point, she decides to stop play-acting as a regular person and be her true self again. This never comes across as a plot convenience or contrivance either, where the character forgets or fails to use their powers for no reason other than the author uh, doesn't want them to use them yet, and then the author decides, well, it's time to move the plot along, so now the character remembers, oh yeah, I have these powers. That's not the case here. This is her character. This is who she is. Someone who wants to pretend To be part of a lesser, more vulnerable group, but not at the expense of giving up the plans she has for herself that involve that group and involve manipulating and using that group. Eleanor is a manipulator and a murderer, and ultimately she proves quite selfish later on uh, in the novel delivering a speech. That justifies all the suffering others have been through due to her machinations and absolving herself of any wrongdoing as though it were all fate. And there was nothing that any of them could do about it. And she was just like the rest of them, just a human being being pushed around by the whims of the universe. This failure to take accountability, of course, makes some sense for a godlike being with little concept of limitations and faults and consequences. She's incapable of feeling the same kind of suffering she is even indirectly responsible for with the collateral damage that I mentioned earlier. She represents a certain kind of treacherous, powerful outsider that we might encounter without fully knowing it even in the real world. The person who wants to present themselves as down to earth, just like ordinary people, one of the crowd, but whose casual decisions can actually impact a number of lives and yet whose status insulates them from any real repercussions of whatever decisions they make. Think of, for example, a high-ranking executive within a company who says or does something that makes people want to stop doing business with that company. Who, in the end, would really suffer from the fallout of that potential boycott? Is it the executive when they're forced out, potentially, even though they have potentially generational wealth to fall back on? Or would it be more so the employees facing cutbacks or layoffs in the aftermath of this who are truly part of an entirely different group from that executive despite technically belonging to the same organization? Would they be the ones to suffer more? I think the answer, you know, I kind of answered the question itself by describing uh, the outcomes there, but that essentially is what Eleanor represents within this story. Someone who either can't even fathom, much less appreciate, the true depth of the impact of her decisions and actions on others, or someone who just can't be bothered to try to empathize. And Eleanor's true feelings about humankind are possibly revealed in the way that she treats her children. She has two daughters, the first of whom in her youth is a small, uh, frail child, but she would eventually grow to be a, a healthy quote-unquote normal child meanwhile her second born would be a sickly child and remain sickly throughout her adolescence the firstborn is named Miriam and early in Miriam's life Eleanor has a conflict with Oscar's horrible mother whose name is Mary Love and in order to negotiate favorable terms with Mary Love over something that Eleanor believes is rightfully hers she gives up Miriam, her firstborn child, to be raised by Mary Love, and Mary Love thinks that she has won this, you know, this child in a power play, but in truth, Eleanor has no feeling, has no care for the healthy Miriam, because Miriam is too human. She is too unlike her, and this bears out as the story progresses. Meanwhile, uh, her secondborn child, the one who remains sickly, as I mentioned previously, is named Francis, and She treats Francis with the the doting and care that you would expect a mother to have for their child, whereas Eleanor treats Miriam as though, you know, she's not quite a stranger, but certainly not like she's one of her own children. Francis is sick, of course, because she does not truly belong with humankind. She is much more reminiscent of Eleanor, but she hasn't come into her powers yet, obviously. She's still in... Not just, you know, infancy in, in human terms, but in infancy in terms of whatever species um, classification, whatever uh, category Eleanor belongs to and her kind belongs to. So Frances is going to take more time, obviously, to come into her own when she eventually realizes her true nature and where she, quote unquote, belongs When she does eventually discover later in life that she is more at home in the water and that she can transform into the kind of creature that is, again, the natural state that Eleanor uh, originally inhabited, at a certain point, Francis never wants to come out of the water again and eventually has to to make that decision of whether or not she wants to be an outsider permanently and, and completely live away from humankind and forsake that part of her heritage um, in order to fully embrace what she is or if she wants to try to coexist in both worlds this outsider this true outsider that echoes Eleanor's origin and, and ancestry is the one that Eleanor truly loves whereas Miriam is the one that she neglects at least until a point late in the novel when she needs Miriam's help and then she tries to make a half-hearted attempt to reconcile with her estranged daughter, but really, it's just another example of Eleanor engaging in self-serving behavior. And maybe extending her lineage was one of Eleanor's primary goals all along, although it seems fairly apparent that she could have done this without the long con masquerade. She could have just seduced a human male for a one-night stand, bore his child hopefully bore a child that was sufficiently uh, similar to her, and if it was too human, cast away the child and done this over again. So while that might have been part of her goals, it couldn't have been the only goal or the the main goal. Perhaps she was indeed fascinated by Oscar Caskey. Maybe she was just bored with being the outsider and observing human beings from afar and occasionally uh, devouring one, and wanted to stop being the myth, the river monster never seen by anyone who could live to tell the tale, and instead wanted to give the whole uh, being a human being thing a go, or at least, you know, quasi-human, before, you know, for all we know, her time was soon to be up relative to her lifespan. She ends up giving it a pretty full ride in terms of living a human life as well. She lives through an entire adult lifetime, sees her daughters and even grandchildren grow to adulthood, and then in the end she passes away in her bed at her home after some parting words with the ones that she loves as best as she could love them, generally experiencing a death that is as close to human as she possibly can. Granted, there are ghosts at her bedroom door trying to get to her before it's too late to exact their revenge at the point of her death, but other than that, it's a pretty normal death. Despite this, in the end, Eleanor never really wanted to belong to humankind, and her actions tell us that. Eleanor does not want to be part of this lesser group that the rest of the people around her belong to. She wants to use parts of that group while discarding others. When she's finally had enough of jousting with Mary Love and decides to kill her, she does so in part by turning Mary Love into an outsider within her own family, which, to be fair, Mary Love married into just like Eleanor, but she arranges for the rest of the family to go on a long-awaited vacation while leaving Mary Love behind and subject to Eleanor's whims and machinations. And I think it again warrants a mention here that like other Southern mothers in McDowell's novels, Mary Love is an evil person in her own right. Part one of my second favorite McDowell book, The Elementals, is titled Savage Mothers, which is a play on words because the last name of the Focus family in that story is Savage, but still the meaning is very apparent in this story in the Blackwater Saga. Mary Love is a savage mother, and she is about to be replaced by yet another savage mother. And I'm not here to play armchair psychologist, so I won't speculate as to why the savage mother theme is one that McDowell revisited so often, but it is a theme that he did indeed revisit. And in the Blackwater saga, again, there is no shortage of savage mothers, as we've already detailed how savage Eleanor can be to her very own offspring and how savage she is going to be to the rest of the family in terms of using them for her own needs, is going to be made apparent, but first, she has to dispose of Mary love. There are ants called slave makers, and one way one type of slave maker might stealthily take over a colony is to feign harmlessness, in their case the ultimate harmlessness of playing dead, to trick the worker ants into bringing them into the nest. Then, once inside, the slave maker ant kills the original queen ant of that colony, and then covers herself in the dead queen's pheromones, leaving the rest of the colony none the wiser. And this does bear some similarity to the behavior of Eleanor Damert, except, of course, Eleanor is not uh, an insect. She is some kind of deity, and therefore much more frightening and much more dangerous. Eleanor is not an outsider because she is discriminated against or disadvantaged or looked down upon. She's the outsider because she's too powerful to be normal. She's too powerful to be anything other than the other. And even more down-to-earth, or seemingly more down-to-earth examples of frightful outsiders often revel in an imbalance of power that weighs in their favor. John Ryder, the character memorably portrayed by Rutger Hauer in The Hitcher, seems to be an ordinary, as ordinary as you can be, serial killer, an ordinary man at least, However, he's essentially the Terminator, able to take out entire legions of police by himself. And the only thing separating him from being a Terminator really is his egotistical, psychotic personality. He holds power over his victims in a way that essentially makes him supernatural and in a way that they can't hope to match. And since I brought up the Terminator, that gives us two more examples of outsiders. One of whom has every reason to be afraid and the other of whom gives us every reason to fear him. And again, the one that is frightening is the one that has the imbalance of power weighing heavily in its favor. But as tempted as I was to make the Hitcher and the Terminator the subjects of this episode, and I might get around to them, I'll I'll probably get around to them in some future episode at some point, I really couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite books and, again, one of my favorite villains that I think deserves more attention in the genre. Eleanor Damert made an impression on me before i was even halfway through with the blackwater saga because as i mentioned earlier she can make you forget multiple times throughout the book that she is one of the bad guys she is a deliberate invader as bold as a viking raid as deadly as a serial killer as insidious as an infection thank you for listening to episode 6 of the healthy fears podcast If you enjoyed what you heard, leave a rating or review if that's appropriate to the preferred podcast platform that you are listening through. Also tell a friend. Feel free to recommend this to anyone you think might be interested in the subjects that I cover. Then join me in two weeks where I'll talk about our fear of placing trust in someone. In the meantime, if you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find a list of my publication credits at johnnycompton.com. One way or another, until the next time you hear from me. Maybe keep an eye on that one newcomer, the one who seems to know a little bit more than she should about a town she's never been in before and whose backstory doesn't make any sense at all, and who looked like she might have alligator teeth that first time she smiled at you. I'm not saying she is necessarily some kind of reptilian river goddess. I'm just saying maybe don't leave her alone with mom for too long.